Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This podcast is being recorded during the 40th Critical Care Congress here in San Diego, California. Our guest today is Dr. Clifford S. Deutschmann, MD, FCCM. He's a professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in Philadelphia. He also serves on the SCCM Executive Committee and is currently the treasurer and will be next year's president. President-elect. Uh, president-elect. Uh, of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. It's, uh, it's an exciting opportunity for me, and our focus today is going to be both on his research areas of interest as well as his clinical uh, expertise and, from my perspective, interestingly, his uh, interaction uh, with the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Thank you so much, Cliff, for being here today. My pleasure. I thought I'd begin by letting you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you ended up in, in medicine, and how did you end up in critical care medicine? Okay. I, uh, I ended up in medicine by accident. Um, I went to college to study history, which would have meant when I was done I was qualified to drive a cab, uh, and fell in love with chemistry while I was there. Uh, went off to grad school to, uh, to study chemistry some more, and in the good old days back in the uh, 70s, discovered that chemists couldn't really make a living. So I decided to switch my interest to medicine, uh, the, the best decision I ever made. I ended up in critical care, again, almost by accident. Uh, my first, I started life intending to be a surgeon, actually a neurosurgeon. My first rotation as, a, uh, as an intern down at the University of Florida was in the intensive care unit. And at the time, uh, the individuals involved in that intensive care unit included, among others, John Downs, uh, Bob Kirby, Jim Gallagher, uh, some of the greats in respiratory therapy. Uh, I can absolutely relate having the unique privilege of using a ventilator on a patient that basically had been wheeled in from the front entrance directly from John Downs' garage, where it was jerry-rigged to provide PEEP and IMV. Nonetheless, I continued to pursue surgery uh, and neurosurgery and went to the University of Minnesota where I met former SCCM president Frank Serra. And once again, uh, discovered that my aptitudes lay more in taking care of patients than in actually operating on them. I spent two years uh, a fellowship with Frank, one clinical and one in research, and then went off to uh, Johns Hopkins to do an anesthesia residency. Finished that, remained on the faculty there for a number of years, and moved to the University of Pennsylvania in 1993. I've been there since. Um, and before we get to your research, which uh, I've explained to you how fascinating I found it, I was wondering if you could share with us, uh, as you were getting involved, uh, I guess, finishing up fellowship and starting as an attending, your involvement with the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and, and you've obviously been involved with them for quite some time, and maybe share some of your perspective on the Society. I joined the SECM because Frank told me I had to. Uh, he really didn't give us much of a choice. He also didn't offer to pay for it, but he didn't give us much of a choice about joining. Uh, I've been involved, I think I joined in about 1984, uh, when I was in the middle of my fellowship time with Frank. Uh, came to my first meeting in, I believe, about 1985, and haven't missed a meeting since. 
I've been involved in multiple aspects uh, of the society. I had some interest in advocacy, and John Hoyt, uh, when president, appointed me to the advocacy committee. Uh, I worked through my section and eventually uh, was fortunate enough to be given the, uh, the section seat, the designated seat in, uh, in anesthesiology on council. Spent six years on council and then was uh, recently advanced to, uh, to the executive committee. The society has obviously changed tremendously. Uh, my member number is 1094 which basically means when I joined the society, there were a little under 1,100 members. We've just crossed the 15,000 mark. Uh, I've seen the society obviously grow tremendously. I've also seen it move from California to Chicago. I've seen it blossom uh, under the leadership of a number of tremendous people. I've seen it truly encompass the notion of multi-professional critical care. The first council meeting I ever went to was presided over by Maureen Harvey the first non-physician to serve as president of this society, and perhaps the first non-physician to serve as president of any basically physician-dominated society. Beyond that, uh, I have seen uh, the educational programs grown tremendously, and probably the most important thing that I've seen in the society that's changed is a remarkable group of incredibly dedicated staff people. David Martin became our executive director when uh, we moved from California to Chicago. He has assembled an incredible team who are as dedicated to the notion of caring for critically ill and injured patients as any of us are. They take our mission every bit as seriously as we do, uh, and they seem to always be there with an incredible level of enthusiasm helping you get projects done. The nature of what we do has, has changed. Uh, we started out as an educational society, and we remain primarily an educational society, but we've expanded in other directions, and recently we've become more and more involved indirectly uh, with the development of healthcare reform, with the development of process measurements and process variables uh, for examining healthcare efficacy, and a number of other uh, different directions. The one thing I, I will say that we have not done yet, and which I hope will be the focus of my presidency, is expand our emphasis on research. Uh, that is something that's clearly near and dear to my heart. It's, along with the care of patients, what I do, uh, and something I, I feel very strongly about. Thank you. And I, I thought we would use that um, as a segue into some of your research areas. And I, I'm, I'm not an expert in this, but I found it endlessly fascinating, and I would love to hear some of your perspectives. As I spoke with you about before, the uh, particular manuscript that I found helpful was published in Critical Care Medicine in 2007, volume 35, number 9. It was a supplement, and it was an article written by yourself and uh, Richard J. Levy called Cytochrome C. Oxidase Dysfunction in Sepsis. And I was wondering if you could sort of give some background for the average practicing intensivist, because it seems like it's very, very translational research. And I, and I loved the way you wrote this, taking us from a patient with sepsis down to the mitochondria. So I'd sort of let you take it from there. Well, first of all, I have to start by saying that um, two things. The first is that this was part of a, a relatively large symposium uh, on uh, multiple organ failure uh, that was run as a prequel, if you will, to one of the Brussels meetings by Jean-Louis Vincent. Um, tremendous opportunity, a lot of fun, ability to interact with uh, some, some really amazing people. The other thing I have to say is that uh, one of the great things about getting to be a little long in tooth is, uh, is that really smart people come to you with really cool ideas, and you can say to them, sure, go ahead, 
and then when it works, you put your name on the end of the paper, and everybody thinks you're smart. Uh, that was exactly the case here. Uh, Rick Levy uh, is currently the director of cardiac anesthesia at National Medical Chil uh, Children's Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, he was a, a, an anesthesia resident uh, when he came to me after finishing a residency in pediatrics uh, and started doing a pediatric critical care medicine fellowship and spent two years as part of that fellowship in the lab with us. Rick was interested in the heart, and he was interested in why the heart and sepsis in particular became dysfunctional. We've all seen that. We have our patients. They get septic. They get sick. We know that their cardiac outputs are high. We know that their ejection fractions are relatively high. And yet when you look at them, it simply isn't working properly. The heart is not emptying properly. The forward flow is not what it ought to be. And many of the compensatory mechanisms that you see in sepsis appear to be designed to permit the heart to adapt to this, uh, this disease state. Rick's notion was that if the heart didn't work properly, if it couldn't contract properly, that it probably involved a, a, a misbalance of energetics. There was some data in the, uh, in, in the literature to support that idea. Uh, his unique notion was that there must be a defect in the mitochondria. Now, the, lucky for us, we were at the University of Pennsylvania uh, where you can find just about anything, and the great thing about the Penn campus is you can find it relatively close. Uh, we have a terrific veterinary school, and it turns out that the head of the Department of Animal Biology at the vet school uh, was an expert on mitochondrial function. So Rick, as part of his fellowship in my lab, went up to uh, this lab uh, run by a gentleman named uh, Narayan Avadani um, and explored, learned how to explore mitochondrial function. Now, the tack that he took is a little different than what most people would take. Most people look at mitochondria, and what they look at is the utilization of oxygen. And that's difficult. It's tricky. It depends on all kinds of things. It requires equipment like special electrodes. The approach that Avedani recommended to us was to look at the enzyme that was responsible for using that oxygen, but to look at it from the point of view of the other substrate in the equation, which is cytochrome C. If we could follow the rate at which electrons were removed from cytochrome C and donated to oxygen to make molecular water, we would have a very good handle on how well that enzyme was functioning. And you can do that, as it turns out, with a, a simple uh, photo photometric uh, analysis. So Rick learned this technique, brought it back. Uh, we had a longstanding interest in sepsis and have used the sequel ligation and puncture model. And Rick applied this to, uh, to cardiac function in, in, the, uh, in the mice, harvesting tissue at different time points along the way and looking at the effect uh, of this septic process as it developed on the function of cytochrome C oxidase's ability to oxidize cytochrome C. It turns out it's dramatically impaired. Uh, he looked at it a little further to try and figure out uh, why it might be impaired, and one of the things that became clear uh, is that the enzyme itself, which is a very complex enzyme with, I, I believe, 13 subunits, uh, the important subunit from a functional point of view is encoded by DNA that lives inside mitochondria. Now, we all know or have some notion from way back when that we probably developed mitochondria when we were invaded by some kind of microorganism, and we set up some kind of symbiotic relationship so that this microorganism would provide the rest of us with energy in return for which we would provide it with a safe place to live. Um, but one of the remnants of that is mitochondrial DNA. So we looked at the expression of the genes uh, in that mitochondrial DNA and found that as we got towards the tail end of our study period, 
in the more severely septic animals that the expression of those genes didn't decrease. That gives us a good handle on why the energetics uh, of sepsis change, if you will. The initial problem is an impairment of the enzyme function, and eventually this evolves into an absence of enzyme. So we have a good handle on why the heart initially becomes dysfunctional and why it's eventually extremely difficult to reverse this dysfunction. And what I loved about this and what you were discussing now is just very, I thought, beautiful uh, scientific thought going from one step carefully to the next, and you focused in on this, talking about whether or not it was competitively, uh, whether the enzyme was competitively versus non-competitively inhibited, giving you ideas of what the underlying mechanism might be uh, given the different uh, sort of biochemistry that was going on, right? Well, one of the things, that you, correct in, in a sense. What's very interesting, and I learned a tremendous amount about enzyme kinetics uh, from doing these studies, is that competitive, uncompetitive, non-competitive very much depends on which, which end of the enzyme you're looking at. So for example, what we were looking at was the ability of the enzyme to use cytochrome C. That was uncompetitive inhibition, which is to say that's interpreted to mean as something abnormal in another part of the enzyme is impairing the ability of the enzyme to bind cytochrome C. Well, the obvious source for that something abnormal is the heme site where the oxygen binds. And it turns out if you look at the oxygen kinetics, there's a competitive inhibition. So you get a little of each. And that takes us very nicely to the next step because what is there in a heme group, and we all know heme groups from hemoglobin, that could compete for oxygen binding? The obvious, the obvious thought in, uh, in, in a patient with sepsis would be nitric oxide. Uh, so we looked, and as it turns out, we were wrong. It, it didn't turn out to be nitric oxide, uh, at least not as so far as we can uh, discern. There are other possibilities, and those are things we're exploring actively now. And then, uh, again, back in this paper, uh, and you say you were going to take the story even beyond this, but then you said conceptually the question is, is giving exogenous cytochrome C something that might help? And I, I thought that was fascinating. Again, you know, credit where credit's due. That was Rick's idea. Um, and he did it. Uh, he uh, found a way to first label uh, cytochrome C um, with gold and to follow it on electron micrographs. And it turns out we can get cytochrome C into uh, mitochondria from the bloodstream, which has other implications that we can get back to in a second. Uh, and then we redid the very same studies we did, adding on direct measurements of cardiac function, looking at the development of left ventricular pressure, looking at the development of contractility index indices, looking at them eventually as a, uh, as a function of the uh, coronary flow rate, since contractility is, of course, dependent on, on, on the blood flow to the, uh, to the myocardium. Uh, and as it turns out, giving cytochrome C did indeed reverse some of the, uh, the inhibition that we saw in, uh, in sepsis. Uh, again, a fascinating idea. Now, the other corollary of that, and which is, again, to me fascinating, is we all know that leak from the mitochondria is one of the things that turns on apoptosis. And one of the things that's supposed to be part of that leak that turns on all the apoptotic machinery is the presence of cytochrome C in the, in the cytoplasm. Well, we were giving cytochrome C into the bloodstream. And to get it into the mitochondria, it had to traverse the cytoplasm. And yet we saw absolutely no apoptosis. So that would imply that we need to rethink the role of cytochrome C in the whole apoptotic process. It may be necessary, but it certainly isn't sufficient. 
We were so. giving in far higher quantities than what you would see from a leak from a mitochondria. So having so. a successful result in, in this particular study, as you were saying, m m mandates that we rethink our hypothesis about its role in other areas. Is that exactly. what you were saying? Yeah. One of the great things about research is you're never done answering questions and you're never done asking. And so, uh, as I was saying here, just as I was highlighting certain parts of this, your most recent work, however, demonstrates an improvement in defective complex four function, enhanced cardiac function, and decreased mortality when an animal model of sepsis was treated with exogenous ferrocytochrome C. This begins the process of establishing a more definitive correlation between mitochondrial dysfunction and sepsis pathophysiology. It also suggests a potential previously unexplored therapeutic approach. And, and so I wanted to ask you more about that. That's... Obviously, the, the way you end a paper is with, uh, with, with an exciting conclusion. Um, and, and I think to an extent it's all true. Uh, studies that have been done that were going on at the same time and that have done subsequently show that it's not just complex four, not just cytochrome C oxidase that becomes dysfunctional in sepsis. Uh, Mervyn Singer's group has shown very clearly, both in humans and in, in the same animal model we use, that complex one is impaired. Uh, a group down in Texas has shown impairment of complexes two and three, which are linked and hard to separate out. Um, so the notion of mitochondrial dysfunction, we, we've extended our findings, the same findings we had in heart tissue to uh, most recently to uh, liver tissue. Uh, so the concept has traction. It, it does underlie things. Um, as far as what it says about the pathophysiology, well, again, that's interesting. Some people would say that this is the obvious cause of the abnormality, the dysfunction, the problem in sepsis, if you will. And if we can fix that underlying problem, maybe, finally, we can help fix sepsis. But it's also possible to take an entirely different tack, which is to say that, like vasodilatation, uh, in response to cardiac dysfunction to improve forward flow, the problem of the mitochondria is a response to something even further upstream. You could make the argument that the body produces some endogenous substance which displaces oxygen from cytochrome C oxidase, and that serves as a switch, a trigger, that says to the mitochondria, stop working because something is going on that's going to make matters really bad if you keep doing it. That's the interpretation that, for example, Mervyn Singer would take when he says that the worst thing we can do in an organ failure patient is flog the organ into working harder, uh, giving a dysfunctional heart big doses of catecholamines and making it work even harder only makes matters worse. Now, I don't know what the answer to that question is, um, and it's certainly a really important one. As far as therapeutic uh, avenues are concerned, uh, again, it becomes really interesting. We've shown that cytochrome C will improve the function of the mitochondria, the function of the heart, and the, the outcome data are, are sort of different. Um, our, our animal, our IACOC people frown on using mortality as an endpoint, so what we do is look at a specific point in time and count the number of animals who are still alive when we finish, uh, instead of just letting it run the course and seeing how many survive. At 72 hours, the mortality was improved. Now, that doesn't mean that the mortality won't be exactly the same at 96 hours or at two weeks. Uh, those are studies we haven't done yet, and it's important to keep that in mind. The therapeutic aspects really become fascinating because there are things that we know that will directly stimulate the activity of cytochrome C oxidase. And this was another uh, brilliant connection um, that Rick Levy made. Someplace he found a paper that suggested that phosphodiesterase inhibitors would prolong, would 
improve the function of cytochrome C oxidase. Now, we've all used phosphodiesterase inhibitors clinically, and almost all of us use a big dose of one every day. It's called caffeine, and we get it from Starbucks. Um, so Rick's next move was to take these animals and give them a dose of caffeine that scaled down for, we changed to a rat model because it was a little easier to use, scaled down for the size of a rat, amounted to the equivalent of about a cup and a half of coffee a day, which for me is normal intake. Um, and lo and behold, we saw exactly the same sort of results that we saw when we used the cytochrome C itself. Uh, improved uh, mitochondrial function, improved cardiac contractility, and improved 72-hour uh, mortality. Again, a fascinating notion. We're, we're in the process of writing a, a, a grant to Starbucks right now, hoping that they'll fund our research from here on in. But And the concept there isn't... Um, uh, and again, I was trying to go from the one paper to the next, but I understood if you said we found that the cytochrome C oxidase wasn't functioning and we thought maybe it wasn't functioning because it didn't have enough substrate and we're going to give it the substrate and we seem to get some improvement. But but the mechanism of caffeine is, is different, right? Yes, it's completely different. Okay. And again, that goes back to the argument that maybe the problem that causes the, the underlying, the initial, the most basic problem in sepsis doesn't lie in the mitochondria or that particular part of the mitochondria itself, but rather this mitochondrial um, behavior is a response to something that's even worse. Now, I have a theory on how that would work, um, but that, that may be for a different time. And um, we're actually heading towards the end, and I was wondering if you wanted to make any final comments either about um, your, your personal research or some final comments on uh, the sort of the future of, of critical care with all the changes in health care and reform and all of that? Sure. Um, first of all, I would advise anybody who has even the slightest inkling to do research. It's great. It keeps you alive. It keeps you interested. It keeps you invigorated. Uh, it gives you access to people who, um, who want to learn, who are equally uh, interested and invigorating. It allows you to function as a mentor. It's great. And a lot of ways, you know, involvement in SCCM has been very much the same. You know, critical care has grown dramatically. Uh, it's become a much more difficult specialty to uh, practice. Uh, we face all sorts of challenges, major workforce challenges. Uh, being involved in a problem that needs solving is the best possible thing you can do career-wise. Uh, and the SCCM... What I find particularly wonderful about this, or wonderful about this organization, um, and we all belong to multiple organizations, is that in the SCCM you can actually get stuff done. It's great. I've been speaking today with Dr. Clifford S. Deutschman, uh, MSMD FCCM. He's a professor of anesthesiology and critical care at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and he is the president-elect of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and he is a uh, translational research scientist in addition at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's great. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Explore new frontiers in a city where great ideas take flight. Register for SCCM's 41st Critical Care Congress.
which will take place February 4th to 8th, 2012, in Houston, Texas, USA. Houston provides the perfect setting to forge new connections and fuel innovation in the critical care community. The 41st Congress will focus on new and inventive solutions that dramatically improve the outcomes and lives of critically ill and injured patients worldwide. For more information or to register, visit www.sccm.org congress. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts. Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MD, FCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.